Alrighty. Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Roger Hudson. And my name is Nick. Today we have a very special episode of GradCast for you. Uh, we are on tour uh, in a pseudo fashion kind of way. I was recently in Barcelona, Spain for a short period of time before um, moving just a few kilometers west to Castel de Fel, Spain, where I was at the Gordon Research Conference, which centralizes on cannabinoids in the CNS, or uh, endocannabinoids, which are made in the body, and phytocannabinoids that are derived from marijuana or cannabis. I met a very uh, special person there, very nice person, uh, very good researcher. We had a lot of fun there. Uh, Andy, uh, Andy Roebuck, uh, you are a... uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, second year PhD student at the University of Saskatchewan? Yep. Fantastic. And which which department are you in over there? So I'm in the Department of Anatomy, Physiology, and Pharmacology. So Anatomy. it's quite a mouthful, recently merged together, creating a giant cohesive force of science. Fair enough. So, so in, in that anatomy and physiology, that, that, that whole blurb of things over there, do, do you largely focus on the neuroscience side of things, on, on those aspects, or are you kind yeah. of an anomaly in that sense uh no so there's a fair amount of neuroscience researchers here in saskatchewan and our group mostly focuses on behavioral neuroscience so we're more on the behavior side of things and how can we record from a living system very very cool and uh so so we work uh you you work with uh in vivo preclinical animal models so which model do you do you use So right now we're working with a model, it's a genetic model that mimics symptoms of absence epilepsy. So it's this rat model that has, uh, it produces these epileptic-like seizures on a regular basis. And we work with this model through a bunch of different behavioral and biological assays. So what is absence epilepsy? I'm sure many people will know what epilepsy is in a general sense, but is this a specific form? Yeah, uh, so absence epilepsy is a specific type of epilepsy, but one kind of thing to pull it back when we're talking about epilepsies in general is kind of a cardinal principle of all epilepsies is that they all relate to an imbalance in the normal excitability of neurons, so inhibition and excitation, and that system has been dysregulated in the brain. So all epilepsies share that kind of common field phenotype, but absence epilepsy or childhood absence epilepsy is a specific type. It's not the convulsive seizures that you're used to imagining when you think of a seizure. It's more akin to short, maybe five, 10 second lapses in consciousness, almost like daydreaming. And so many people grow out of it, but it can happen 10 to 20 seconds at a time. And children can have as many as 100 seizures a day. So I'm wondering, so usually when we think about adult seizures um obviously the first thing that we think about is like the convulsive part but you know i also think about what happens when they're behind the wheel right like or in situations where going out of consciousness would be very dangerous what is the effect of this form of epilepsy on the children and specifically like their quality of life uh well certainly that's something that's becoming under more research so you can imagine if you're kind of daydreaming or dozing off for 20 seconds at a time 100 times a day you're missing out on significant portions of say classwork or time in school or it doesn't tend to happen in times of 
uh, intense stimulation, so it doesn't really happen when during a sporting event. But if you're daydreaming, try and care about your math lessons, and suddenly you daze off. So you're starting to miss huge gaps. And what's coming up in the literature more and more is that children as they age are uh, presenting with more phenotypes that resemble things like anxiety and learning disabilities. So while they're not having those big convulsions that people think of with seizures, there is clearly some long-term side effect and really a reduction in quality of life. Mm -hmm. But there's no, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's no immediate danger uh, that's in the same way that's a full convulsion uh, seizure could lead to possibly death if, if yeah. it's treated or severe enough. Yeah, so as far as I know, I've not really heard of too many dramatic complications uh, acutely. Uh, there's no real post-ictal phase or uh, after the seizure. They don't, there are many times in other types of epilepsy, there'll be a period where they're a bit dazed and it takes a few hours to kind of recover from it. With these shorter seizures, they kind of snap back into it relatively quickly. So there's less immediate risk, but what it, what it has often been labeled as kind of a benign epilepsy is showing to have really long-term effects on their health outcomes as well. Uh, children with absence epilepsy, while many will grow out of it, uh, are there at a much higher risk for developing other types of epilepsy later on. So, so you mentioned uh, the comparison between daydreaming and these uh, absent uh, seizures. Uh, they're not actually daydreaming in the sense, right? Uh, well, I mean, I guess we'd have to get into some real in-depth conversations about consciousness and what's happening at that level. But, but I I've seen just an extension of the, where I was really going with it is just, just essentially, do they even realize that they're having these seizures or, or can somebody go on throughout their life and not even realize that they have this disorder? Yeah, so I've heard of many people uh, just from their own patient descriptions saying things like they're blanking out or it's, you know, kind of just skipping over it. They don't even really realize it's happening. Fairly so, in most uh, scientific presentations. Yeah. I'm sure there's everyone has. Uh, there was a conference I went, or not even a conference, but a little event uh, here at the Robarts Research Institute here at Western, where they had a VR set which um, simulated what it was like to go through a seizure. And it's exactly how you say, like it's sort of they suspect something weird is happening, and then it's like snap, and then they're back to it, and they they know that they've had a seizure, but it's yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, for other types of epilepsies, there's certainly uh, pr some people report preceding signs, uh, visual, auditory. I've heard of some smells that sometimes will, people can kind of feel the halo coming on and feel the seizure coming on. Yeah, so there's cues or symptoms that yeah. precipitate the actual onset of the event. So it, it isn't essentially uh, daydreaming, like when I'm bored in class or, or whatever like that, bored in a lecture and my eyes start to glaze over and I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm feeling really tired. That 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 wouldn't be a cue to start anyways. Uh, no, I don't think, Roger, you're going to be able to use this as an excuse for not paying attention next <laughs> time. You caught me. Yeah. You caught me, Andy. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Um, so, so how did you actually uh, get involved in seizure research and, and how, I, I guess, at the University of Saskatchewan, and then how are you taking it a step further and in integrating uh, endocannabinoids uh, and different signaling processes in, in your research? Yeah, so I guess I got involved in this. Uh, our lab has done a lot of work characterizing some of these behavioral comorbidities associated with epilepsies, specifically these absence-type epilepsies. 
So again, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of viewed as an inert epilepsy, which is really not true. It, it, there are a decrease in quality of life. So we've done a lot of work characterizing how these behavioral comorbidities might affect the quality of life, uh, increasing things like anxiety or generating learning impairments. So we came at it from that angle, and then we started working. Uh, there's this uh, cannabinoid research initiative of Saskatchewan, so a collection of researchers who are focusing on cannabinoid research. And we got set up with a partner here, uh, Dr. Robert McCrary. And so they're working in from a pharmacology angle. And they thought that, well, targeting the endocannabinoid system might be an effective way to start treating some of these seizures. So with absence epilepsy, uh, most of the, the treatments available for them, they're effective in, let's say, two-thirds of cases. But they're not effective in all cases. And some of them are associated with very severe side effects. So I'm going to try and quote it directly, but I believe I pulled this directly from Wikipedia. So valproic acid, one of the main treatments for absence epilepsy in children, is associated with things like uh, hepatotoxicity or liver failure and minor other things, including pancreatitis and increased suicide risk. So these are not inert treatments that are currently available, and that's really the front line, and it's not fully effective. So there's a lot of refractory or untreatable conditions. That's an absolute shame, of course. Now, just uh, hearing off of recent news articles I've seen in the past couple of months, I think it was Sativex that was yeah. recent, or Epidiolex, correct me if I'm wrong, one of those two were um, legalized or, or FDA approved or the Canadian version of that uh, for prescription uh, to individuals that might experience, um, I'm not sure if it was epilepsy related, but uh, certain endocannabinoid deficiencies uh, yeah. in that context. So uh, I, I personally am really excited about the field of endocannabinoids and epilepsy. It's uh, one where, uh, the, it, this is just kind of a bit of an aside, but it's the only field in science where almost every paper starts with a historical review trying to prove that they've been using cannabis to treat epilepsy for about 5,000 years. So every paper starts off talking about the ancient Chinese cultivation of cannabis, the Sumerian texts talking about it being used. So it's not a new thing we're looking at here, targeting the endocannabinoid system or the cannabinoid system in the brain. It's just something that's coming kind of back into vogue. Uh, as everyone's probably well aware, can cannabis as a plant was rather demonized for about 100 years, and but it did have a long history of evidence of some therapeutic benefit. So what we've seen, uh, one study came out of the University of Saskatchewan very recently, working with children with Lennox-Gastaut and Gervais syndrome, so very severe pediatric epilepsies. These are refractory conditions. They don't respond to any treatments. And so they were using a combination of THC and CBD, so high concentrations of CBD in an oil form. And so those are our phyto... Sorry. Can you speak to the dose concentrate? Do you know the dosages or the yeah, so they were using a 1 to 20 ratio, so 5% THC to 95% CBD, and then they were using up to about 10 to 12 milligrams per kilogram, and that was their daily dose. So they'd be an oil, that's quite a high dose of CBD, but what they were seeing is in some of these conditions that are untreated by other forms of medication, they were seeing some of the patients totally seizure-free in these severe forms of refractory epilepsy. And were so these in rodent models? No, those were in uh, human models. Like, oh. not, pardon me, not human models. Uh, so those were in actual patients. So th okay. they, this was 
there, there's an ongoing study across Canada and the U.S. But yeah, they, a few of those have popped up in the news in the past couple of years. Uh, small sample sizes is still, I think that they're in early stage clinical trials, yeah. anything, right? but uh, certainly promising results. And, and is that something that you're looking into with your research as well? I mean, from my understanding, you, you mostly focus on the endocannabinoid side of the coin, but looking more at the cannabidiol or the CBD relationship and how it may be treat, uh, useful in uh, treating epilepsy or pediatric epilepsy. Yeah, so uh, that's actually a great kind of segue. Uh, what we looked at originally was we were thinking, well, the cannabinoid system or the endocannabinoid system is the effective target for the treatment of epilepsies. We, as I kind of mentioned earlier, epilepsies are imbalance between excitation and inhibition of neurons. So our electrical activity is out of sorts. So using things like THC and CBD, well, they seem to be effective they might not offer the specificity to treat all types of epilepsy. So what's been seen in a lot of the preclinical studies with THC is that where low doses of THC might be anti-epileptic or anti-convulsive, at higher doses, they might actually increase certain types of epilepsies or certain types of seizures. So we get into this world where we have maybe a narrower dose window and we don't want to accidentally be making someone's condition worse. But that so that's seems to be what we're seeing in a lot of fields, right? That the THC uh, aspect is the more negative, produces... THC is the bad guy. Yeah, exactly. CBD is the yeah. good guy. Yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Not that <laughs> to simplify. Mm-hmm. I mean... Um, I, I, I'm wondering if you can explain to our viewers in this episode, I guess, what the endocannabinoid system does in our bodies. Okay, yeah. Uh, so the endocannabinoid system plays an important role in almost every bodily function. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's of its type, uh, G-protein coupled receptors. It's the w- most widely distributed. It's found in nearly every tissue type. And it's quite a promiscuous thing. It's involved in everything from appetite to anxiety. And there's a lot of potential therapeutic benefits. Now, one of the main roles of the endocannabinoid system is regulating excitability at the synapse. And so when we're talking in the world of epilepsy, it's, it can kind of offer that fine tuning. So whereas other drug treatments and other systems are more like an off and on switch for a light switch. So just to put it in the context of how a seizure would develop, I imagine mm-hmm. that wherever the seizure begins in the brain, there's a and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but but there's a, a hyper excitation that goes on and then that begins to spread to other regions. And before you know it, motor regions and consciousness, yeah. everything is just firing, firing, firing. Yeah. So uh, broadly, I would say that's a, a fairly accurate representation. So, But it isn't just as simple as saying there's over excitation in one area. Because okay. what we can also have is under excitation of our inhibitory processes. So we had a, yeah, yeah. So it's really it's finding that fine balance. And so one theory with THC promoting seizures is perhaps we're over inhibiting and we're allowing all these things to fire a little bit too much. Mm. So that's where we got into this looking at how we can use the endocannabinoid system to kind of just offer a fine tuning approach. We're not trying to make the big changes that THC would be making. We're trying to make the smaller changes to just kind of hit that sweet spot with hopefully less side effects. Absolutely, and uh, I guess, like you're saying, these phytocannabinoids 
may not have the specificity, the affinity, or the efficacy at, at whatever receptor profile that we're looking uh, to have it act at in order to have the therapeutic effects. I mean, THC primarily binds to CB1, but it has diverse interactions at opiate receptors and, and other TRPV-related receptors, whereas CBD has over 60 different pharmacological targets, at largely at sub-threshold levels that likely to many hypotheses work in conjunction in order to produce some, some, some sort of therapeutic effect. So is there some, I guess, precise um, molecule, precise mechanism that your research might be able to target in order to kind of push that field forward a little bit faster? Yeah, exactly. What we're looking for is we're trying to gain precision and we're trying to improve that dose-dependent relationship, and we're trying to improve safety and have fewer of the negative side effects associated with something like THC. So what we're doing is we're targeting the CB1 receptor, the type 1 cannabinoid receptor, with a compound called a positive allosteric modulator. And so it's quite a mouthful. We usually just call them PAMs. And our... Yep, go on, go on. And our PAM here that we work with is a series of compounds called GAT211 and GAT229. So they don't quite have the dreamy name yet. I'm sure that'll come up yet. But they're, right now, they're these GAT compounds named for the uh, creator of them, Ganesh Thakur. So give you a background. They do have a reason why they're called these. We're not just making stuff up. Just throwing letters and numbers yeah. together. It's literally what seems like many of these uh, research chemicals, they're just throwing things together, like, but they probably have some kind of actual rationale behind the madness. I, I would hope so, at least. So these positive allosteric modulator, that, that's what the GATs, the GAT11, 211, that's what they would fall underneath the category of, these positive allosteric modulators. Yeah, and so what a positive allosteric modulator is, is so... We can think of the old lock and key idea with how your receptors work in your body. The lock would be our CB1 receptor, and the key would be our agonist, or our, our molecule that binds to this lock and opens it up and allows it to function. So one example of the CB1 agonist would either be your endocannabinoids, and, 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 and pardon me, anandamide or 2-AG, or uh, THC would be another partial agonist. So it'd be many different keys can fit these locks, but what a positive allosteric modulator does is it isn't a key or a lock, but it helps the key and the lock find each other. So you can think of it as maybe like applying some oil so your lock works a little bit better. It helps our endocannabinoids find the lock. So one way I've tried to describe it, and we'll see if it sounds as good in uh, real world as it does in my head, is so I kind of view these PAMs as like Tinder for CB1 receptors. Okay. So alone, they're not actually going to help the CB1 receptor do anything. They have no function by themselves. If you only have Tinder and no one to talk to, you're not getting anything out of this. But when you combine two eager individuals, in this case, let's say, anandamide and your CB1 receptor, the PAM works like Tinder and helps them hook up. Interesting. So, I don't know if that analogy really helps, but it, basically what they do is they don't actually activate the receptor. They just help your body's functions work a little bit more um, efficiently. It helps, I guess, at that receptor. It allows it to function in a quicker way or a more, uh, yeah, less repressive way. Um, yeah, so more efficient. 
so what we've seen in our model, uh, so in the brain region where seizures originate in the models we work with, it's quite well characterized in the somatosensory cortex. The, that's where these seizures really start generating. What we see is that they have a decrease in these receptors and an increase in our endocannabinoids. So there's an imbalance from what we would expect in a normie, normal, healthy individual. So this so, is following chronic exposure? Uh, so this is a symptom of their epilepsy, is causing an imbalance in their endocannabinoid system. Right. So this is a epilepsy mouse model? Uh, yeah, it's the, a genetic absence epilepsy rat from Strasbourg. It's okay. a, yeah, and so it's a genetic model. We don't do anything to produce their seizures. They carry a certain mutation. Mm -hmm. okay. So then you are giving them these PAMs? Yeah. And then... Are you seeing how they behave? Uh, so we've looked at a few different aspects of it. So what the first part we looked at is how this actually affects their seizures. Right. So with the PAMs, or without the PAMs, we, uh, we would expect our animals to have anywhere from 50 to 100 seizures in an hour. So again, these are those short 5 to 10 second seizures. They're non-convulsive, so they're not convulsing. They just kind of drift away. So we're measuring their electrical activity in their brain. So we actually can know, because I mean, it's hard to ask an animal if they're daydreaming or not. So we measure it. And normally they'd say, let's have 50 in every hour. What we do is we administer these PAMs. And what we're seeing is a huge decrease in the number of seizures. So anywhere from 50 to 60% fewer seizures. And so that we're obviously very excited by that, uh, a huge reduction in seizures. And we're also seeing uh, with many sort of CB1 agonists or activators like THC, you often get a number of side effects. So things like lower activity, hypothermia, this traditional tetrad of effects. And so our PAMs aren't producing these effects. Hmm. Uh, I, I, that was going to be my next question because you're, you're uh, giving, I'm assuming, systemic administration. Uh, of these pos uh, positive allosteric modulators, the CB1 receptor being the most abundant G protein coupled receptor within the mammalian brain, especially if you're giving it to uh, um, a rat model that's in youth. This is a pediatric epilepsy model, I'm imagining. The CB1 receptors are very crucially uh, vital to the early neural development. And, and you're not seeing any changes, I guess, to your measured variables, or, or do, you, do you see any? Uh, in general uh, so 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 far what we we haven't really seen many behavioral effects of these outside of the reduced seizures now it's hard to get kind of the same profile we would with a human participant or a human study where they could really give us some of that feedback on how they're feeling internally but these compounds when administered either systemically so injected into them or infused directly into the brain both scenarios are reducing the seizures and both scenarios seem to be handled and tolerated quite well. Interesting. So, so we're quite excited for this because it seems to be maybe a promising research avenue to where we can start targeting this, this CB1 receptor more specifically, hopefully get rid of some of the side effects and improve treatment. So is there a subset of these rats? Do you see about a 40 or 50 to 60% reduction in these absent uh, seizures? Yes. Is there a subset of animals that don't respond at all or just respond less so? And then another subset that potentially is extremely responsive and maybe shows no seizures after administration of the, of the drug? Uh, so that's a fair question. Uh, what, we haven't really seen too many differences in how they respond on an individual basis so far. 
So I get, these studies are fairly early on. We've been working on it for about a year and a half now. But uh, we don't really see any individual differences. Um, so this drug is, is, is not uh, being metabolized in such a way, because like, that's a big problem with the phytocannabinoids. The, the metabolism is diverse between it. On an inter-individual scale, some individuals will get a much larger amount in the bloodstream versus others. But it seems like this PAM compound is being, I guess, to a small amount of variability, but very similarly active across your, your species or your, your cohorts. Yes. Yeah, so for our studies in our models, we haven't seen any where they've been a big dramatic difference between groups or between individuals. So none of them are totally seizure free, but also none of them are, don't respond at all. So everyone responds somewhat, which is quite promising that it's more of a global effect or it's not individualistic. I think it's particularly promising because, as you probably know, with any of this um, CBD or THC treatment of pediatric epilepsy like Dravet syndrome, there's marked um, variability between patient responses. Some patients have miraculous like responses where their seizure rates are almost at, at zero, whereas others have actually more seizure rates relative to what they were starting at. So the side effect profile is a little bit all over the place there. So it's very, very interesting that this may potentially be such a clean compound. Yeah, and I mean, I'll be honest, I'm a bit hesitant to always translate right over to what we would see in a clinic or something like that. I mean, except for what my maybe ex-girlfriend might say, I'm not a rat and we are quite a bit different than those rats out there. Uh, that's a joke for everyone. Uh, I, I do think there is still yet a lot of research to be done. With our models, we wouldn't really expect many compounds to totally get rid of every seizure. So we weren't really surprised when we didn't completely abolish seizures. But we are excited that, and this isn't my data, but some that I've seen, we are seeing that other groups are getting similar results with these types of compounds. So maybe it isn't just a one-off for this type of epilepsy, but that these GAT compounds or allosteric modulation of CB1 might be promising for all types of epilepsies but that's still gonna be something to come up in the future. And, and do you think that might have something to do with the, the fact that the CB1 receptor, again, being one of the most abundant receptors in the whole body or the, in the mammalian brain, and it's, it, it is an, an, an inhibitory receptor. So activating or producing normalized levels of activity at this receptor might help to remediate homeostasis in a sense anything like that? Is there a potential hypothesis that you have? Well, I mean, I would love to say that what is happening here is these GAT compounds are binding our CB1 receptor and restoring our natural homeostatic balance. And then we're getting that balance that was disrupted between excitation and inhibition. And so our goal, obviously, is to try and restore this balance. We have a disrupted system. And so what we want to do is get it back to a normal functioning level. Whether that's going to be the case in all epilepsies, more research is going to have to obviously be done there, but it certainly seems to be a promising research area. So I, we're, we're running out of time here a little bit, but I want to know, um, so if you keep continuing uh, this experiment and continue to find the promising findings that you are getting, what would be the next steps with this? Yeah, so that's a great question. So some of the next steps for a study like this a lot of these are still experimental compounds. So no human has ever ingested these compounds. Right now they work in a laboratory, they work at a lab bench for a hungover grad student. 
but when can we get them into the clinic? So our great collaborators at Northeastern, uh, Ganesh is one of them, as well as Dr. LaPrairie's group here at the University of Saskatchewan, are working on trying to develop these compounds in a way that they might be tolerable for a human population. So the next step is going to be looking at how this next generation of these things, can we keep that therapeutic efficacy? Can we keep that lack of side effects or fewer side effects than what's currently available? And can we keep this going with a safer and safer compound that might be fit for human consumption? So the next step is really just continuing to push forward and trying to get targeted medicine really working in this area. And that's a fantastic goal to strive for. A five-year goal? Uh, we'll see. We'll see how long I can uh, stick out this PhD. I mean, by all means, hire me right now. <laughs> I have one more really quick question, if that's okay. More pertaining to, I guess, the, the real-world spectrum of how these drugs might actually apply to humans once they make it to the clinical market, if they make it to market, knock on wood. Um, recent... Uh, clinical trials of endocannabinoid modulating drugs such as uh, FA inhibitors or fatty acid amide hydroxylate inhibitors, one of the main um, enzymes responsible for the breakdown of natural endocannabinoids produced by your body, like uh, Andy said, uh, the 2-AG and the anandamide. Depending on the dose and depending on the person, it can it, it causes deaths in these clinical trials, brain swelling, uh, extreme, uh, uh, severe side effects. And uh, I think for the most part, the entire community is a little bit hazy about applying such a wide spectrum drug to a, to a uh, receptor that's so widely expressed and so ubiquitous in its function through the CNS and through all through the body. So Absolutely. So, I mean, when you look at like similar, uh, compounds like FALA inhibitors, FALA is uh, largely involved in the degradation of anandamide, as well as other compounds in the body, other lipids. When we look with something with an allosteric modulator, the, the target is to get more specificity. So, whereas FALA is going to be acting broadly, inhibiting, or, uh, degrading, pardon me, degrading compounds throughout the brain and body, the goal would be to have these modulators bind and have their effect as targeted as possible and without any endogenous activity on their own. So presumably these compounds in a living system don't actually activate the receptor in isolation, which other types of positive allosteric modulators have been used in clinics before, and they are associated with better tolerability because they can only activate the receptor however much the endogenous ligand or the endogenous agonist is present. So it, they're, they're tolerated a bit better, or that's how at least the theory goes. Again, I'm not a clinician, so. So, so at rates at, at uh, excuse me, if I, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but at rates of high levels of the um, endogenous neurotransmitter at the receptor, the positive allosteric modulator would not have such an effect. It would almost not be as active, whereas when you at low levels, transmitters present around immediately around this uh, around the receptor, would the uh, allosteric modulator bind and have have its actions? I mean, I, I I'm hesitant to comment on the exact pharmacology, just uh, uh, for fear of making myself look too silly online. Uh, but one thing, <laughs> my friends, yeah, I guess that that ship has sailed for me. But one thing. Uh, one way to look at it is, so when you compare it to a compound like THC, and that's a good comparator for this kind of thought experiment, 
we normally, let's say we have 100 anandamide molecules that want to activate our CB1 receptors. Our PAM is going to help each one of those 100 molecules find the CB1 receptor and help it signal a little bit better. When you add in something like THC, you still have those 100 anandamide molecules that want to activate the receptor, but then you have all these THC molecules that want to do the same thing. So you can have more saturation, you can have a greater signaling effect than the body would normally produce or normally allow itself. So just to clarify, does it do, do these PAMs increase the affinity of endocannabinoids for the receptor, or when the uh, endocannabinoids arrive at the receptor and that PAM is bound, will it increase the efficacy, the, the downstream effect, which it, or is it both? Uh, so it all depends on exactly which GAT compound you're talking about. There's kind of a series of them. With GAT229, which is the one we've been mostly working with in our epilepsy projects, it's going to work and increasing both the affinity and the efficacy of the receptor. So basically, they'll bind better and more effectively signal. Well, that a beautiful compound, beautiful series of compounds, it seems, and with some real, real therapeutic uh, potential. Andy, you'll have to keep us updated as your research progresses and how these, you know, the results as they flow forward. I'm sure you'll be publishing a, a bunch of them in the next coming uh, days, weeks, months. <laughs> yeah. We'll see how, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely, though. You're, you're always welcome back on the show if you'd like to share uh, some more of your research. It was an awesome time uh, meeting you back in Spain, uh, and it was really, really great getting to uh, chat with you here on the show today. Well, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, just in case any of our viewers want to follow up with you, anything you brought up here on the show, uh, do you have any social media or some kind of contact information, email, anything that uh, some potential listener can get in contact you by? Yeah, so you're always welcome to email me directly through my name at gmail.com. Really complicated thing, andrewjroebuck at gmail.com. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Or you're more than welcome to contact me through Twitter, which seems to be the way most science is communicated these days. And uh, at that, I'm Dandy Robot. Because Dandy Robot, <laughs> that's a, that's a almost my name, but slightly more clever. Perfect name. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. If you'd like to get in contact with us or get in, uh, become a member of our show, uh, come on to the show to share some of your own ideas. You can get in contact with us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. If you'd like to see or view or listen to any of our previous episodes, you can catch them all at gradcast.ca. Um, you can also hear us every Tuesday, 6 p.m. on CHRW in the London region, 94.9 FM. Uh, and you can also catch us anywhere that you listen to, our, to your podcast, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, etc. Select episodes, including this one, most likely because we've had a uh, video recording here, are going to also arrive on YouTube. So hope to see you there, too. It's at Gradcast Radio there as well. Thank you very much. Thank Have you. Week. Until next time on tour. See you again soon. Bye. Bye.